Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. What Price Hollywood, a new book by Dr. Elise Helford, a professor of English, examines representations of gender and sex in the films of George Cukor, the Oscar-winning director of The Philadelphia Story, My Fair Lady, The Women, and many more Hollywood classics, was labeled a women's director for his ability to work with some of the industry's top-notch actresses. But Cukor's work is far more complex and deserves a deeper analysis. We'll get started with Elise Helfert after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Seniors who use the St. Clair Senior Center in Murfreesboro can make their lives a little greener and a little healthier with help from the MTSU Department of Human Sciences and an innovative method for growing produce and herbs. Students are tending to plants that are being grown in the first floor lobby of the Ellington Human Sciences Building in two vertical aeroponic garden towers filled not with soil but with a rock wool medium, a wool-like material made by melting rock and spinning it into fibers. After students fill the 13-gallon reservoir at the base of each tower with nutrient solution and water, a low-wattage, submersible pump pushes the mixture to the top of a garden through a pipe. The solution drips down through the interior of the tower and over the plant roots. A timer prompts regular repetition of this process. A veteran MTSU professor takes over the Africana Studies program. Adonaya Bakari, a professor of history in his 26th year at the university, assumes control of the interdisciplinary program from his colleague, history associate professor Lewis Woods, who is now focusing on teaching. Bakari said there are more than 20 students majoring in the discipline. He said he'd like to see it grow by making two survey courses in African-American history general education classes. Even though the COVID-19 pandemic stymies many study abroad courses, Bakari is looking ahead to the day when more of those courses will take students to Africa. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome back, Elise. Nice to see you, even if remotely. Thank you. It's good to be here and good to see you again. Let's start with an exploration of what that woman's director label really means and what impact it had on QCOR's career. QCOR didn't like it. Uh, As you said in your intro, uh, it was a label to indicate that QCOR could work with independent women. They were considered difficult was the word that was used at the time, but what that meant was they knew what they wanted to do, They had talent, they wanted respect, uh, uh, and they were independent-minded, and that was seen as difficult in Hollywood. And so QCOR worked with people from Katherine Hepburn to Joan Crawford to Judy Garland, um, Marilyn Monroe, all of whom were seen as difficult, but we would probably just want to call them independent. Although, you know, when you're dealing with uh, stars and celebrities, they can be difficult. Or someone like Marilyn Monroe, who is having a lot of personal issues and drug-related issues going on. There is a second meaning to the term, too, and that is that it is a homophobic slur. To call someone a woman's director means you should direct women and not men uh, because you're gay. And Cukor was gay. He was out to the, the Hollywood community, everyone knew it was an open secret, everyone knew he was gay, but there was a link at that time drawn uh, that is still sometimes drawn today between 
homosexuality and femininity. Gay men were seen as less than real men who should be heterosexual. And so for Q Corp, this meant that Hollywood executives saw him as best suited to direct films centered on women's lives. So romantic comedy, melodrama, and not crime pictures, westerns, or the like. I've always thought, based on what I've read, that it was Clark Gable's insecurity that got Cukor fired from Gone with the Wind. How ironic is it that the screen's king of macho masculinity felt threatened by a gay man? There's a lot of evidence of that. That's a good reading. I agree with you. Cukor was the director selected to direct Gone with the Wind, and we also know if we've watched the film, that it is not Rhett Butler's film. It is Scarlett O'Hara's film. It is about her. She is the central character. But Gable argued that the film was being thrown to Vivian Lee. And the idea that it can be thrown to her suggests that there is some debate over who the film's central figure is. There are many rumors. The the one that I found wildest is that both Clark Gable and George Cukor slept with the same young man at some point, and Cukor knew Gable's secret, that he had slept with men too, and so he wanted him off the picture. But there isn't any other evidence other than that it was a rumor at the time. But he got Cukor kicked off the film, and it was a great humiliation to Cukor. We should note that there are scenes still in the film that Cukor directed, including the scene where Scarlett O'Hara, in her widow's gown, dances with Rhett Butler, Uh, but he was kicked off the picture. He also, that same year, worked on The Wizard of Oz, and there are bits of his in Wizard of Oz as a director, though he goes uncredited in that one. And then the picture that was given to him kind of as compensation was The Women, which is a film that stars over 100 women and no men, but is about nothing but women's obsession with men and competition with each other. Cukor enjoyed working on the film. He enjoyed working on most of the films that he directed. However, he never really got over being booted from a film because he was gay or knowing that that was what was going on. As a feminist, how do you feel about the way the women are depicted in The Women? It was based on a play by a woman, had a screenplay written by two women, and as you mentioned, had an all-female cast. I heard even the dogs were female. I have mixed feelings about The Women because the original play is a satire. And my argument in my book is that it's a mixed bag and you have to read it multiple ways to get all of its tricks spelled out. I feel the film is problematic primarily because the main character, Mary Haynes, played by Norma Shearer, is earnest. She is not played satirically and she's represented in the menagerie of animals that symbolize the women as the credits roll in the beginning, uh, is as a deer. And the idea that she is to be read straight while everything else going on around her is campy and satirical is very problematic because it makes you take the film seriously. And Joan Crawford, when she ends the film, says, oh, well, it's back to the perfume counter for me. And she feels that this game she was playing to woo this husband is a game she'll have to play again. Only Mary plays things very soberly. She's unhappy because she loved her husband so much. And when you add a straight woman in, it becomes a comedy drama. And if it stayed broad comedy, I could love it. But because the satire is limited, 
and I have a whole chapter on how I think Q-Core, satire did not really work for Q-Core because in addition to being a woman's director, he was also an actor's director. He loved working with actors and even in his bad films or arguably lesser films, there are great scenes because he gets the most out of his actors and uses the long take. In other words, don't stop the camera during the scene. And because of that, he goes for earnestness. And so that can be problematic for films that are comedies or films that are meant entirely to be satire. We'll take a break right here. This is MTSU on the record. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer an interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We're back with Dr. Elise Helford, a professor of English and author of What Price Hollywood? about the representations of gender and sex in George Cukor's movies. You assert that Cukor employed camp, drag, and other combinations of gender images in his films. Can you give us a few examples of that? Cukor has a large number of examples of female characters in male drag. So these range from bits, like in Little Women, where Joe in Little Women dresses up as the villain when they do the play. So you have examples like that that are childish and fun to Sylvia Scarlet, which is a film in which Katherine Hepburn is in drag as a young man for 90% of the film. Then there are other examples like his one foray into the Western that is very much not a Western. <laughs> it takes place in the West, but it's about a theatrical troupe in the Old West. And Sophia Loren is in that film. And I would say she's doing female drag for much of the film in tight corsets and a huge voluminous platinum wig on the top of her head, but she also does male drag when she does what is an impersonation of Ada Isaacs Mencken, who did drag acts in, in the Old West, as Prince Mazeppa. It's a layered presentation with historical resonance, but when Sophia Loren is wearing a flesh-colored leotard with her pointy bra underneath and, a, and her waist cinched, you never think she's a man. But men at the time, when Mencken was doing these things, just loved these acts. They found them entertaining and ribald and, you know. And there's also uh, Judy Garland in, uh, a star, in her version of A Star is Born, does a number dressed up as a kind of a Tom Sawyer figure. And it harkens back to childhood when gender doesn't matter and contrasts strongly with her adult role as the wife of an alcoholic and a star on the rise while her husband stars on the wane. Everyone doesn't have to be everything, but it can be painful to watch some of Cukor's films uh, and some of the scenes, even in some of the films that I think are his best. He was not a writer and he did not change other people's writing. And so he might add a scene that he thinks like the first scene in Philadelphia story that's very famous where, where Catherine Hepburn Blake breaks Carrie Grant's golf club and she throws him out of the house 
and he pushes her in the face. Cukor wrote that and added that to the film. It's the only thing he added. Everything else is from the Broadway stage play that Catherine Hepburn had the rights to or she wouldn't have been in the film. In his toying with gender, he was fairly radical, at least early on. So in a film like Sylvia Scarlet, where Catherine Hepburn is in drag for most of the film, that's pretty radical. The studio made him add on a beginning in which there's a reason for it. He said he wanted to just do it. Maybe she just likes to be in drag, he said. But the film had to add this intro in which her father is fleeing from gambling debts. And she says, well, I want to go with you. And he said, no, no, you can't come with me. And she goes, well, I'll be tough and hard. And we see her cut off her braids. And she dresses like a boy then. The film was a huge flop and some terrible editing in it, particularly in a scene where Denny Moore playing a female maid character goes on the run with them. And they perform a traveling act as the Pink Pieros in kind of Commedia dell'arte clown, pink clown costumes. Uh, then they travel together in a caravan. And at one point, the Denny Moore character says, oh, your face is like a baby's. And she draws a Ronald Coleman mustache on him, her, him, her, Kate Hepburn as Sylvester, and then kisses Sylvester. And what you've got there is a long scene of two women kissing. Catherine Hepburn pushes it away, but it's a, it's a big kiss she plants on her. And there's a terrible kind of wavy cut in the middle of it because the studio, because the studio didn't like it. Audiences didn't like the film and Cukor basically said in an interview, I said, George, you just, you don't be so damn daring in the future because what was most important to him was success. And so he didn't take those kind of risks, but he included play. And that's one of my, points in the book as a whole that came as I wrote the book. I didn't start with it, but it's where it ended up and why the title, What Price Hollywood, which is the name of an early film Cukor directed, which is the predecessor to the Star is Born films. Uh, and by using the title, What Price Hollywood, that's a question I ask. What would Cukor have done if he were more of an independent director? Well, he wouldn't have done much till the 50s if he were able to, to, to go that long and get to the era in which you have someone like Ida Lupino making social commentary films and things like that independently and others could work independently. But he wanted to work with the studio system and he liked classic film. So even his final film in 1981, he worked over 50, like 50 films, 50 years kind of a situation. And he, in that last film with Candace Burke, uh, Candace Bergen and uh, Jacqueline Bissett. Uh, Jacqueline Bissett, thank you. That is based on a film that originally starred Betty Davis called Old Acquaintance. And so he's still referring back to classic Hollywood, even in his last films. And that's where he was most comfortable. He didn't like being pigeonholed, but he very clearly had a comfort zone. Did Cukor just follow his instincts in the way gender and sex are depicted? Or was there a certain intentional ideology driving his methods? Or would it be overthinking things to accept the latter premise? He would reject the latter premise. He said, I'm not an auteur, meaning I'm not a singular artist the way someone like Hitchcock is. A, you, can, you know a Hitchcock film pretty much when you see it. Although he did direct Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman that a lot of people think is a Hitchcock film, and it's not. But he would say he didn't have an ideology. He just wanted to be successful. He wanted to make films. He wanted to live in the style to which he became accustomed. And he wanted to have elegant dinner parties. He was a 
real Anglophile and loved the rich. He found the rich fascinating and his dinner parties, like Cole Porter's across the way, having naked pool parties with young men. Cucor's having his elegant Sunday dinners with Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, and he loves their accents. And he liked to spell with British spelling, putting a U in color. And um, he also liked, this, liked Swedish women, and he found them very classy. He also was very afraid um, of things like HUAC, when the House on Act an American Activities Committee and the Red Scare are questioning Hollywood and saying this is a space of debauchery, too much violence, too much sex, that kind of thing. He did not want to get called up. And the few friends of his who were blacklisted, he pretty much cut contact with. He didn't speak against them, but he didn't speak for them. So I think some of this was a natural inclination to enjoy wit. He liked to tell jokes and he liked to tell very low class jokes, whatever, what we would, what we used to call like off color jokes. He used slurs even for gay people and Jews. He could do real self-deprecating humor, but it was usually for fellow Jews or gay people who acted effeminate or over the top. He really disliked that. So you'll see in one of his very early films, there's a, a character that that in Russo's the the celluloid closet he calls kind of the most offensive pansy stereotype ever in Hollywood is in one of Cukor's films where he's a dancing instructor with lip rouge and and rouge on his cheeks as well and his final line in the film is something like oh what could be better than the sight of two women of title kissing one another as two rich women make up at the end of the film I want to credit him for what he chose. You know, he did reject certain films and didn't make them. But we can't credit him for original content that only Cukor did, because he said, if you don't trust the writer, you shouldn't make the film. So, you know, he was good friends with Mom, Somerset Mom, and he worked well with the Canaans and with Philip Barry and with others that he felt were excellent witty writers. And he was really well known for taking Broadway films, adapting them from the stage for the screen. With very few exceptions, he didn't add scenes, add characters, change a character and make a character gay or that kind of thing. Time for another break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. This is Jean Nagy, Department of Art. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The book is called What Price Hollywood? It's by Dr. Elise Helford, a professor of English. It's about the films of George Cukor, and Elise has been writing this book for a long time. I have. <laughs> and I it's have. finally out now, yes. 
It's so exciting. It looks really wonderful. I started writing about QCOR as my research interests shifted wildly. And one of the things I love about MTSU and the English department is that we're so big, you can slip into new courses and new areas of research without hurting the department. And I started thinking about, he's got four pictures that have film noir elements in them. He's got a bunch of films that have alcoholics in them. He's got a bunch of films that show domestic relations with strong ethnic American characters that symbolize, even if they're not stated, Jewish American and Italian American. The Italian American family is more obvious. The Jewish American are two films featuring Judy Holliday. And she's a very New York brash performer. And so you can read the films through a Jewish through Jewish coding. And suddenly I had most of a book found a, focused on a few more issues like his relationship with Catherine Hepburn and how he helped her get over the box office poison label she was saddled with early on. Uh, and one about satire and one about female friendships. And all of a sudden I had a book. What kind of pictures do you think Cucor would be making today had he been born in a different generation? He directs the film, The Chapman Report in 64 starring Shelley Winters as a woman in a boring middle-class marriage who's cheating on her husband with a no-good guy who goes from woman to woman, and his wife keeps taking him back. Claire Bloom as what we then called a nymphomaniac, but today we would talk more about possibly PTSD, but at least horrible self-esteem and masochism that lead her to let men treat her abusively. Jane Fonda, who is frigid, <laughs> as the film calls it, and Glynis Johns as the comedy in the show, who has that babyish voice, and she and her husband live this perfect life, but she decides, perfect persnickety kind of uptight life and she decides she's going to pick up and she picks up this hunky beach bum and says she's an artist and she wants to sculpt him and he's dumb as a post and she brings him in and she's flirting with him as if she's in a novel and when he actually makes a pass at her she completely freaks out and runs back to her husband uh claire bloom basically is raped and then invites the men back before taking an overdose of pills and kills herself Jane Fonda falls in love with and marries one of the interviewers for this report, which is based on the Kinsey report. So there's sex in it. Uh, they cut out a scene or two and is dealing with contemporary social issues. So he was willing to do it. It's also a product of, his, of its era in terms of mainstream attitude towards sex. And so I am not crazy. It's fascinating, and I do write about it in my chapter about female friendships as a coda to the chapter, because female friendship, oh, say in the women, some of the women are friends, some of them are catty, but friendship is important to them. And then there are several other films that I discuss in terms of female friendship. But by the Chapman report, there's no possibility. None of these women can be friends. The woman who's sleeping with the married man, the Shelley Winters character, she could become friends or the, the wife could become friends with her and say, Let, I'm going to leave this husband who's dumping you. Let's go off together and go on a vacation or something. And they don't. Jane Fonda tries to befriend the Claire Bloom character who after being raped by a group of men is kind of just tossed onto the street 
tossed out of the car in front of her house. And Jane Fonda comes to her because she lives nearby and picks her up, brings her to her house, and then Claire Bloom just won't let her help. She's like, I'll run you a bath. No, just get out of here. Because she's so full of self-loathing that she can't be friends with women. And so there's painful stuff going on in this film. And Cukor felt, you know, it's another woman's film because it's dealing with these four women who live in the same city and playing with types from, you know, that would become Stepford wife types to highly sexualized women with emotional problems. But the pronouncements of the doctor and stuff are not as progressive as Kinsey would be. He does return to friendship with his final film in 81. Uh, and in that film, that film features two women who have to reconcile friendship with years of fighting. They're both authors, one more classy, one more writing trash fiction, but they both envy each other. One's divorced from kids, the other has stayed single. They love each other, hate each other, but in this QCOR 81 version, it goes further and there are more, and there are more one night stands with men. And critic Pauline Kael argued that the film was a gay sex film. There are many shots of men's behinds that the women admire men from the back. When the two decide what they're going to do for the new year, there's a mention of here's to a new year, I kiss you, but you know, you're the only one available. And so there's kind of a suggestion that they could be lesbian, but that's icky. And then they go off and decide they deserve a vacation. And the vacation is going to be, you know, a cruise, a Southern European cruise to pick up young men. So Pauline Kael said this is Cukor writing about his lust for young men. If um, he were alive today, he could be out. And I don't know whether that would have made a difference to him to be out because his homosexuality was an open secret in the era in which he lived. His final interview in the 80s, he kind of outed himself, but he never answered the question, are you gay? Yes. But the question was phrased like, as a gay man, one would think this. And he'd say, well, I suppose, yes. But I think even if he lived to 100 and something, I don't know that he ever would have been with a partner. I don't know what he would have thought of gay marriage. I don't know if he would have liked it because I, I, he was so much stuck in an older era and defended it in a lot of his interviews. What Price Hollywood, Gender and Sex in the Films of George Cukor, Dr. Elise Helford. My goal, although I have no ins or connections, is to see you interviewed about it on Turner Classic Movies by Ben Mankiewicz. Thank you. We'll be right back. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte gross EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. Biology professor Mary Barone has been peering into the microscopic world of viruses and bacteria with her students at MTSU for 24 years. 
The internationally recognized microbiologist recently received the university's highest faculty honor, the Career Achievement Award. But this self-professed lab rat says the achievement isn't hers alone. I've always been part of a team. From my high school science club to my current lab full of my colleagues and hardworking, dedicated students, I could not have achieved what I've done here at MTSU alone. And I think that recent events across our country have shown us that when we do work together, we can accomplish amazing things. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.